This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Michael Kimmel is Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies at Stony Brook University. He's also the Executive Director of the Center for the Study of Men and Masculinities. Kimmel is the leading authority on masculinity and gender and author of numerous books on manhood, including Angry White Men, Manhood in America, A Cultural History, and his bestseller, Guyland, The Perilous World Where Boys Become Men. Kimmel served as an expert witness for the United States Department of Justice in the VMI and Citadel cases. He's consulted with all the ministries of gender equality in the Nordic countries, and was the first man to deliver the International Women's Day Lecture at the European Parliament. Michael and I talk about the history of feminism, the changing social and economic forces that shape gender roles, the way boys are raised in our culture, and what it means to be a man. We discuss how the movement toward a more egalitarian world affects our organizations and our families and more. So now... Get set to listen to, learn from, and be inspired by the world's top expert on men and masculinity. It's Michael Kimmel. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure, Stu. Nice to be here. Uh, It's great to have you here. Uh, So we're talking about the state of masculinity in America today and how this informs our understanding of the connection between gender work, and family. Now, most of us are familiar with women's rights movements and with feminism, but uh, tell us briefly, what's the men's rights movement and how did it come to be? Well, uh, just uh, a small caveat. The the men's rights movement uh, began uh, in the 1970s And at the time, it was actually very much in favor of uh, feminism and women's rights as well. Um, It basically made the argument that uh, women, just as feminists said that women were imprisoned by uh, archaic roles, uh, so too were men, Mm -hmm. and that men wanted to be, quote, liberated, unquote, from those roles, just as women wanted to be. The, the men's rights movement has since morphed into a very angry and volatile a- anti-feminist movement, of which I have no part. In fact, I'm probably the person they like least. Um, they, uh, I, because I am a b- big believer in gender equality. Uh, As am I. And, uh, and, I'm, and I call myself a feminist. So. As do I. Right, so I I have a feeling that the men's rights movement wouldn't be, you know, it's not your target audience. Okay, so so men's rights really is uh, is about men's rights uh, as a response to feminism, as a as a right. as an antagonistic response to feminism. Yeah, um, I, I in fact when I was I started my book Angry White Men, mm-hmm. um, and I included a chapter about uh, the men's rights movement in that, and I started it when I was on a TV show. 
uh, opposite four of these men's rights guys, angry white men, who believed that they were the victims of reverse discrimination in the workplace. And mm-hmm. the reason that I began the book then is because the, the show was titled after a quote by one of these men, and he, and he said, a black woman stole my job. Mm-hmm. And so these guys all believed that they were victims of reverse discrimination in the workplace. And when it was my turn to speak, I simply asked one question, and it was about the title of the show. Actually, it was about one word in the title of the show. I said, I want to ask you about the word my. Where did you get the idea it was your job? Why isn't the title a black woman got the job? Hmm. A black woman got a job. Because without confronting men's sense of entitlement, we won't see why so many men resist gender equality. The men's rights movement believes that gender equality is a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. And if women win, men are going to lose. Mm -hmm. I think you and I know better, Stu, the data on, uh, on gender equality is overwhelmingly persuasive that the more gender equal our relationships, the happier men are. Mm-hmm. Not to mention women and children. Not to mention women and children. No, but I'm just saying, so it's, it's even good for us. Right. So it's surely not a zero-sum game. And yet there's this perception among some sectors of society, of men in our society, that uh, because of this sense of entitlement, that it is zero-sum. So, how, well, two questions. Where does that come from, and what can we do about it? Well, look, uh, you know, peop- uh, there's a large number of people in America who've been dealt a bad hand, mm-hmm. um, who, are, who are facing, you know, I mean, here's the reality. Uh, it, you know, it, it, you, I, I know that you would know this. Uh, maybe you li- some of your listeners don't. But if you, look, this, if you look at the data on the family income, um, the, if you look at it in constant dollars, Family income for a family of four yeah. in 1973 was about $38,000. If you keep it in constant dollars, the average family income for a family of four today is about $38,000. So you have to ask yourself, what's different about a family of four in 1973 and a family of four today? And that is, it's, you know, mom's working. So the reality is that if the wage gap has closed at all over the past 40 years. It's not because women's wages have risen so much, but because men's wages have declined. Men are getting a bad deal. Mm. There are many men who are being outsourced, downsized, you know, jobs shipped out. You know, you, you work for a company, as a friend of mine did, you work for a company for 40 years, you invest in the company and, 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 its, and its pension program, and then one day, as you're approaching retirement, the, the, you know, the CEO writes a letter saying, oh, I'm really sorry, but we can't fund your retirement anymore, and it's gone. Mm. Um, so guys are getting a bad deal. Now, the question is, so they're right to be angry. Mm-hmm. But the question is, you know, who are they angry at? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's feminist women who issued predatory loans? Do you think immigrants are responsible for climate change? Do you think LGBT people outsource your job? Not in the least. So I think these guys are right to be angry, but they're delivering their mail to the wrong address. So they are they are right to be angry, but their analysis of the source of their of their problem is mistaken. And that's where I think you and I would know that the data here 
on gender equality is very persuasive. The more gender equal our relationships, the happier the women are, happier children are, and the happier the men are. So how do we break through the, you know, the kind of propaganda that you hear on Fox News and get the real story of the data that you're describing here, Michael, into the American workplace and into, into our communities so that there's a more rational consideration of what it means for men and women to live in an egalitarian society? Yeah, well, you'll probably accuse me of being somewhat Pollyanna about this, but I'm actually quite sanguine. I think the hysteria that you get on Fox News is just is an indication that the reality of people's lives is is daily disconfirming what they hear on Fox News. What do you um, mean by that? It, well, the, the reality is that you know if we are in fact happier, the more gender equal our relationships. The fact is that we are better friends. There's, there's more cross-sex friendships mm-hmm. between women and men these days. There's more, um, you know, men are spending far more time as fathers in their families, mm-hmm. and they're happier for it. Mm-hmm. So every day, I'm happier if I'm doing these sorts of things. And I watch Fox News, and I say, well, that's not me. Mm-hmm. So I think we are living in a every day kind of like the refutation of what Fox News is telling us. So I feel like, you know... The yes, refutation, refuting the, yes, the, exactly. the propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by the way, we are daily refuting the idea that men are from Mars and women are from Venus, which is the silliest book probably ever written. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, because what, what do we know about the workplace? What do we know about what's, what do we know about the university? I mean, take the University of Pennsylvania, where you're broadcasting from. What's the most successful educational reform of the entire 20th century? It's coeducation, mm-hmm. and coeducation means that you can sit in the same class listen to the same lecture, read the same book, take the same test, be graded by the same criteria, and nobody ever goes to the dean of students and says, well, like, I'm a Martian and my professor's a Venusian, so, like, don't I get a translator or extra credit? Nobody ever says that, and you know why? Well, actually, that happened in my classroom today, Michael, so uh, I just get it. Well, the reason nobody ever says that is because, look, I mean, in every measurable attitude, trait, and behavior, women and men are far more similar than we are different. That's what we know from the social and behavioral sciences. So how do every single measurable trait, attitude, and behavior? So we're mm-hmm. not from Venus. We're not from Mars. We're from planet Earth. And nowhere is this more clear than a the American college classroom and b the contemporary workplace. The workplace, and right? yet there's I'm, the simmering anger, or not so simmering. Well, yes, of course, because once upon a time, every single corporate board was all white men. And now, oh golly, we have to share. And look, meritocracy sucks. If you've been, you know, to an aristocrat in 16th century France, meritocracy sucks. Well, because you're giving something up, or so it seems. Yes, you're in giving up the fact that you you and only you get to occupy those positions. Mm -hmm. If you actually have to earn it, you could lose. So the sense of entitlement, how do we... You know, intelligently and compassionately cut into that so that the anger either dissipates or is directed where it should go? Well, I, I think, first of all, you know, in our daily lives, in our relationships with our children, in our relationships with our partners, in our relationships with our friends, we're finding that that kind of is sustaining and is fulfilling. And therefore, the words that we're hearing, the rhetoric, the ideology that we're hearing increasingly rings hollow. But you're absolutely right. The and so here's the other thing I would say is, okay, we, have, we, 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 we organize the world 
so that white men in America basically got all the benefits. And now I would turn to white men and say, so how's that worked out for you? Feeling great about your life? No. All the power in the world actually doesn't trickle down to individual men feeling really great about their lives. In, and this is true whether you're in the top 1% and mm-hmm. you say, oh my God, the guy down the block has two Lamborghinis. I only have one. This is terrible. <laughs> you know, I have, to, I have to get more. Or whether you're part of the rest of the, rest of the world in which you say, I am, I'm making less money now and it has to go further and I need my, you know, my wife is working. Mm-hmm. We're trying to balance things. I know that I feel fulfilled when I spend time with my kids. How could I put pressure on this government mm-hmm. to provide the kinds of policies that I need to make my life work? Well, also on the workplace as well, to create the kind of flexibility and support for men Absolutely. and women to, to fulfill the roles that are meaningful to them beyond the workplace. And, and what we know from our research as organizational psychologists is that when you do that, you get, you get better value from your employees when you give Absolutely. people flexibility and, you, and you, you value who they are outside of work, they bring more to work. You know, this is the thing. I'm t- I talk to CEOs uh, all the time in, in corporations, and, you know, when I, when I tell them, you know, gender equality is a good thing, they all, like, start to roll their eyes and go, oh, God, this is going to be really expensive, right? Gender equality is really expensive. How much is this going to cost me? And I say, you have it completely backward. What the reality is, gender inequality is really, really expensive. How do you Not make that case over. to CEOs? What's that? How do you make that case to a CEO? It's very easy. First of all, think of the labor cost of gender inequality, higher turnover, lower productivity, lower levels of job, or job satisfaction, higher rates of absenteeism, higher retraining costs. They're enormous. Plus, then there's the good news. When, women, when, when, when a, a company announces a woman's ascent to the corporate board, stock prices tend to go up. Corp- com- companies that are bet more gender equal tend to have, are, have higher valuation. They do better. They have higher levels of product, uh, profitability. I mean, the, you know, there's, there's phenomenal data on this from Catalyst and other organizations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so, so to, to CEOs, you don't make the personal lifestyle case. You make the business case. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the sense of entitlement is is it, it, it it's gotten stronger or perhaps more virulent in in uh, in its expression? Um, what else can we be doing in our educational system through the media to cut into that? Well, you know, I think I think it is true uh, that we have to be sensitive to the fact that these changes in our workplace, in our lives, have come really really quickly. Um, you know, my father's workplace looked very much like Don Draper's. That's um, the, uh, up, the protagonist I, of Mad Men. Right. And I grew up thinking my workplace would look like Don Draper's. Of course, it looks nothing like that. <laughs> and my son, however, who's 16, yeah. looks at that world and thinks, that's insane. What's going on there? Right. So in three generations... What's so shocking to your son about, about the, uh, the Draper world of Mad Men in the 60s? What is it that shocks? What is it that shocks your son so much when he looks at that, at, at well, the world first of, of all, that um, you know that all the men are the ones uh, who have the you know first of all it's an entirely white you know uh, white men who have all the corner offices with the windows and the secretaries are kind of in the middle like like a cattle uh, a corral um, and the men have their pick of them you know I mean it, it you know the, the the relationships between women and men and the the wrestling over the past six years. 
um, of the characters to allow women to in- enter this world, um, to achieve in this world, mm-hmm. um, you know, he finds it completely anachronistic. Look, Stu, mm-hmm. when we were when we were young, let me. I'm, I'm going to. Some of your some of your listeners will remember will remember this. When 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 we were young, there was this riddle that was proposed ah, yes. um, that we spent hours trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. And the riddle, and everyone knows this, the riddle was a, a man and his son uh, are driving along on the freeway and they're in a terrible, terrible accident and the father is killed and the son is brought to the emergency room of the hospital where the emergency room doctor takes one look at the son and says, I can't treat him, that's my son. How is this possible? Well, people of my age, I'm a baby boomer, we're flummoxed by I was, too. Right. We couldn't figure it out. We just, like, what? I don't understand. And so, I, so my son, who's 16, has a bunch of his friends over um, a couple of weeks ago to watch. Uh, they were watching a soccer match. And so they're sitting around watching a soccer match. There's five or six guys. And I said, hmm, I wonder if things have changed. So I posed the riddle to them. And they all looked at me like, what? What's his mom, of course? Except for my son, who said, or dad, it could be he has two dads. <laughs> exactly. Right? I mean, it doesn't perplex them at all anymore. Right, yeah. Think about the sea change we in have, our We have come so far, and yet we have so far to go, right? Yes, but, but, to, but to only focus on how far we have to go, I think misses just how far we've come. It's true. It's true. I mean, and that anecdote uh, tells it well, as well as anyone looking at the, 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 the world of Mad Men in the 60s and realizing that it's just not there. Uh, anymore. Just last week, I led a conversation among uh, Wharton men and women about the film The Mask You Live In, which you appeared in as one of the experts. Yeah. Uh, so this was a group that was um, brought together by the Wharton Women in Business. This is mm-hmm. our MBA students and a new group of Wharton men called the 22s. They call themselves the 22s. And most of these guys are in the rugby club. So these are some seriously macho guys. They call themselves Mm -hmm. the 22s to represent how much less women are paid than men (laughs) in society. And their goal is to close that gap, right? So uh, the room was overflowing with people who wanted to be a part of this discussion. We showed it. We had a great conversation about it. So, you know, there's clearly a lot that needs to be worked through. As you do your work, not only in the classroom, but in organizations, how do you... How do you go about helping to raise consciousness about the kinds of things you're talking about here and, and, and moving us you know, to, a, to a world that has less animosity and more support for the, the rise in an in egalitarian or fair 50-50 world that we really all ultimately want to live in? Right. What do you do? A great question. Um, <clears throat> and there's two, you know, the, 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 um, and I, I think that part of it is to recognize that when that, that since these changes have come about so fast that we can't really, you, you can't tell people, um, you can't simply dismiss people's anxieties or right. dismiss people's perceptions. It has to be accepted um, and understood. Absolutely. Every, you know, every therapist, every psychologist would tell you that, you know, you, you can't tell someone their feelings are wrong. You know, the, the, the reality is they, their feelings are real. And you have to attend to them. You can't just say, your feelings are wrong, get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's not going to produce the kind of changes that you're looking for. That'll that's not gonna produce create more resistance. And, uh, exactly. So, so my feeling about this is what we need to do 
is, um, is we need to acknowledge the displacement and the fear that a large number of people have as a result of these changes. They really do mm-hmm. resonate. They really mm-hmm. are difficult. Um, and, and, but I think at the same time, we have to you know, sort of begin to move us off the idea that it was women who did this to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that's, you know, and that's part of the you know, challenging the, the, those notions of entitlement at the same time as we're trying to work through them. You're now working on a book, if I have this right, about bro culture? Well, you know, Guyland was really my book about bro culture. Tell us about um, Guyland and what you discovered in it and, and what its impact was. Well, Guyland is really a book about what young men, what kind of pressures young men are under to prove their masculinity, and especially to prove their masculinity to other guys. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really a book about, it's, it's very often about college-age men. And the reason that it is is because there is something happening that's new uh, in our culture, that um, is about um, really a new stage of development between uh, adulthood, uh, you know, adulthood and uh, adolescence. You know, it's now taking us, as you know, it's now taking us a full decade longer to accomplish the, you know, the the, the markers of mm-hmm. of adulthood than it once did. So, marriage and children, for example. Longer. Sorry, marriage and children, for example, are much further uh, uh, m- happen much later in life than they did in previous generations. Of course, in, in fact, the average age of marriage in 19, 1950 was about twenty point four, and today mm-hmm. it's about twenty eight point three. So it's really taking us almost a full decade longer to uh, you know to to do all of those things uh, that once took us you know that once we had accomplished by the time we were pretty much you know twenty or so. So yeah. Um, so that's uh, so. So that's the extended really adolescence. Like map it, right? And, and, and so Guyland maps that change and its impact on on current society and the workplace. Uh, right. So it, it's really mostly about college age men. Mm-hmm. It's about what guys are being asked to do uh, on college campuses in order to prove their masculinity to other guys. It tries to make us aware, both parents and uh, and young people aware of this sort of uh, these sorts of issues so we can figure out ways that we can in- help young men navigate this world a lot more effectively because right now they're being asked to do all kinds of stuff and you know every day there's another article in the paper about you know uh sexual assault on college campuses mm-hmm. and all of these things well these are the kind of things that guys are being asked to do in the name of proving their masculinity hmm. and so what have you found to be the most effective means for changing that culture well actually um the way i try to engage with those guys is not by trying to tell them that they have to be different but rather that they that that what we really need them to do is to live up to their own ideals of masculinity to foster in them a conversation uh about what it means to be a man um because i don't think that we have one idea about this Mm -hmm. i think you know, we have an idea about what it means to be a real man, which is, you know, stoic and never crying and never showing your feelings mm-hmm. and winning at all costs and all that stuff. But I think if you ask most men, what does it mean to be a good man? You know, at your funeral, you know, you want it to be said of you, he was a good man. Mm-hmm. They have very different models than never crying and never showing your feelings and winning at all costs. They would say things like being a good provider, being yes. responsible having integrity, doing the right thing, standing up for the little guy. 
So, Serving. so I basically want to foster a conversation between the two ideas of masculinity that we have in our heads that are currently, you know, that currently kind of vie for, uh, you know, for dominance. And what I want young guys to know, especially like my son, I want him to know that sometime in the name of, you know, the brotherhood, he's going to be asked to, you know, to be a real man mm-hmm. and, and betray his sense of what it means to be a good man. Mm-hmm. And what I want for us is to foster that conversation so that, you know, it costs him, <laughs> you know, so he can't look at himself in the mirror the same way and say, you're a good man, if he's betrayed, if he hasn't done the right thing, if he's done the wrong thing. So it really you know? begins with a, a kind of self-definition of what does it mean for me to be the man that I want to be. That's right, that's right. So, so, if, so you're asking me how to mm-hmm. engage young men. My feeling is that if I were to, or if you were to propose to them that this model of masculinity that you've embraced is toxic, terrible, whatever, and therefore you have to change it, you'll get nowhere. Right. But what we can do um, is say, it's not my idea of masculinity, it's yours. Mm-hmm. I believe that you need to live up to your own ideas. When I'm asked to work, for example, with a fraternity on, on a campus that has been you know, singled out by the administration as particularly problematic, prone to sexual assault, all that sort of stuff, I say to these guys, you know, I'm not gonna. I'm, I don't. I don't want you to, to to fold up. I don't want you to go out of business. What I, what I want you to do is, I want you to bring me your charter. I want you to mm-hmm. show me what you say you are, because if you look at any fraternity's charter, yep. you know what it says: "We're men of honor. We are gentlemen. We believe in service." That's what it says. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, I don't want you to change. I want you to live up to your own code. Just be true to your yeah. values as as to your you... own professed values. Michael, we, we only have a couple of minutes left here, and I want to make sure I get a, a, a note from you on your thoughts about paternity leave in America and how that's playing out and, and what you see as the important challenges to make paternity leave less stigmatized and more available to men who want to take, uh, take advantage of it. Right. Well, uh, you know, this is a, big, a really big question, of course, because the United States is, is one of only four countries in the world that offers no paid parental leave to anyone, yes. male or female. That's a topic we've addressed three, many times on the show. Right. The other three are Lesotho, Swaziland, and Papua New Guinea. So, I mean, you know, we, we, really, uh, we, are, we really have a, a, an enormous gap here. Now, I think it's very important that, we, that, may, that paternity leave be part of a much larger conversation about changing workplace policies. Men want this. Men want to be involved with their children, and when given the opportunity for paid parental leave, they take it. You don't have to look much further than the Scandinavian countries, where 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 rates of of taking parental leave in Iceland, for example, hover around 96 percent of men. So obviously, men want this uh, because we do want to be around our kids. This is the biggest change among men. Mm -hmm. So, but but parental leave um, for both women and men is a vital workplace. Um, you know, reform that we all desperately need. And men need to step up and say that we want this. And you know why? Because we think of parental leave in this country as a woman's issue. Right. And it's not a women's issue. It's a parent's issue. When yes. men start identifying as parents, we will say, I want parental leave because I want to be around my kids when they're little. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's really important, and it's important to me. And we all know that, you know, women won't get parental leave unless men support it. 
There's never been a reform that women wanted that didn't need men's support. So this is a complete win-win. What's the one thing you want our listeners to, to take away thinking about and perhaps doing to uh, advance the cause of men and women as equals in our society? Well, the, the, the motto of our center, the Center for the Study of Men and Masculinities, and the work that I do uh, in general, it, it can be summed up in basically into one sentence, which is we cannot fully empower women and girls without also engaging men and boys. And when we do, we find out that gender equality is a good thing for men as well as for women. It is indeed. And your work in this field has been just really monumental in moving us forward. Thank you so much, Michael, for the work that you've done and uh, for joining me and our audience today. Thank you so much, Stu. It's a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael Kimmel and that it stimulated some practical new ideas for action. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation. Take a few minutes today to simply reflect on this question. What does it mean to be a man? Whatever your gender, consider this question and write a few notes about what you think. Just doing this will raise your awareness of your own biases, about expectations for men in our society and might then lead you to see what you can do to make life a little bit better, a bit more fair for you and the people surrounding you, men, women, and children. I'd love to hear your thoughts, so write to me directly at friedman.wharton.upenn.edu or on Twitter at Stu Friedman. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends family, and co-workers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.